Is there a giant lurking behind the scenes, threatening to steal your joy? Discover how to banish fear and worry when you read Slaying the Giants in Your Life by Dr. David Jeremiah. This best-selling book is yours when you make a donation to Turning Point. For a gift of $75 or more, you'll receive the book, study guide, CD or DVD album, and more. And this month only, for just $60, you can receive this set immediately as a digital kit. Learn more and donate online at davidjeremiah.ca. Everyone has painful but short-lived periods of loneliness. That's normal. But some people experience loneliness so profound it can be devastating. Today, on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah shares more about the different kinds of loneliness with examples from the Bible. From Slaying the Giants in Your Life, here's David to introduce today's message, Slaying the Giant of Loneliness. Today we're going to talk about a subject that has been uh, written about a great deal in recent days, and mostly about the loneliness of men. Um, I know that sounds strange that uh, that is a problem, but it is a major issue. Loneliness is not just being by yourself. Loneliness is being surrounded by people and having nobody that you know who cares about you. Here is what we're going to learn. We're going to learn about loneliness as we look into the Scripture together slaying the giant of loneliness. During this month, we're studying this course on the events that come to us in life and the challenges that we have and how to deal with them according to the Word of God. Uh, This book called Slaying the Giants in Your Life is now available in a new format. It's 200 pages, and it will bless your heart because it takes you right to the Scripture to find answers to the problems that you're dealing with, problems like worry and guilt and temptation and anger and resentment and doubt and procrastination and failure. All of these written about, and we're going to teach these lessons on the air every day. So don't miss a day. I also want to remind you that you can get a copy of this book for a gift of any size to Turning Point. You will have the textbook for the rest of the series and also the notes that you need to remember everything we've been talking about. So as for your copy of the book, Slaying the Giants in Your Life, when you send your gift to Turning Point during the month of February, this kind of arrangement that we have is a great thing. So we want to make these materials available to you. We want you to make whatever investment you can. I know that some of you may not be able to make much of an investment right now. Inflation's taken its toll on the lives of a lot of people. But I do believe that no matter how tough things are, we can always do something. And when we do something, it helps us to sense the strength and power that God gives us. So make your gift. Ask for the book. It's on its way to you as soon as we hear from you. All right. Slaying the Giant of Loneliness. In his book, Six Hours, One Friday, Max Licato writes of an experience that paints the picture of loneliness in indelible terms. He said, I had driven by the place countless times. Daily I passed the small plot of land on the way to my office, and daily I told myself, someday I need to stop there. Today that someday came. I convinced a tight-fisted schedule to give me another 30 minutes, and I drove in. Now, the intersection appears no different from any other in San Antonio. There was a Burger King, a roadway inn, a restaurant, but turn northwest and go under the cast iron sign and you will find yourself on an island of history. 
an island history that is holding its own against the river of progress. The name of the sign, Lock Hill Cemetery. As I parked, said Lakato, a darkened sky threatened rain. A lonely path invited me to walk through the 200-plus tombstones in the cemetery. The fatherly oak trees arched above me, providing a ceiling for the solemn chambers. Tall grass, still wet from the morning dew, brushed my ankles. The tombstones, though weathered and chipped, were alive with yesterday. Ruth Lacey's buried there, born in the days of Napoleon in 1807, died over a century ago, 1877. I stood on the same spot where a mother wept on a cold day some eight decades ago. The tombstone read simply, Baby Bolte, born and died December 10th, 1910. 18-year-old Harry Ferguson was laid to rest in 1883 under these words, Sleep sweetly, tired young pilgrim. I wondered what had wearied him so at such a young age. And then I saw it. I saw what was chiseled into a tombstone on the northern end of the cemetery. The stone marks the destination of the body of Grace Llewellyn Smith. No date of birth is listed, no date of death. Just the names of her two husbands and this epitaph. Sleeps but rests not, loved but was loved not, tried to please but please not, died as she lived, alone. Words of futility. Max Licato said, I stared at the marker and wondered about Grace Llewellyn Smith. I wondered about her life. I wondered if she'd written the words or just lived them. I wondered if she deserved the pain. I wondered if she was bitter or beaten. I wondered if she was plain. I wondered if she was beautiful. I wondered why some lives are so fruitful and some are so futile. I caught myself wondering out loud, Mrs. Smith, what broke your heart? Raindrops smudged my ink as I copied the words, loved but was loved not. And I thought of empty beds and silence and no response to messages left and no return to letters that were written, no love exchanged for love given, died as she lived, alone. And I wondered how many Grace Llewellyn Smiths there are. How many people will die in the loneliness in which they are living? The homeless in Atlanta, the happy hour hopper in Los Angeles, the bag lady in Miami, the preacher in Nashville, or any person who doubts whether the world needs him, any person who is convinced that no one really cares, any person who had been given a ring but never given a heart, who had been given criticism but never given a chance, who had a bed but never had any rest. These are the victims of futility. And unless someone intervenes and unless something happens, the epitaph of Grace Smith will be theirs as well. Died as she lived, alone. In his book, The Devil's Advocate, Morris West tells us that we need to understand that loneliness is no new thing. It comes to all of us sooner or later. Friends die, families move, lovers and husbands die. We get old, we get sick. In a society where people live in 
and impersonal cities and suburbs and where electronic entertainment often replaces personal relationships, where people move from job to job and state to state and marriage to marriage, loneliness has become an epidemic in our society. And what is it? And how does it feel? Someone has suggested that loneliness is an empty feeling in the pit of the stomach, almost to the point of nausea. Someone else has suggested it's an underlying anxiety, a big black pit. It's a sharp ache in moments of grief or separation. It's a long period of stress that wears you down until you're discouraged and defeated. It's a longing for completeness. One author says it's always characterized by a feeling of emptiness somewhere in the region of the diaphragm. It is a craving to be filled. And at various times, we seek to fill the vacuum with everything from food to alcohol to endless demands on other people. Or we will try to pacify it by using drugs or just going to sleep or perhaps attempting to escape in some other way. Is there a connection between loneliness and health? That's like asking if there's a connection between breathing and life. Of course there is. And loneliness is something we all have to deal with at one time or another. There are many people who experience loneliness in our culture. There are, first of all, in the experience of loneliness, the single people in our culture. And every single person knows the anguish of going home to cook a meal for one and then watching television alone at night with no one to laugh at your jokes or comment on the things that you see together. When she was single, Ann Kimmel wrote about an experience she had on a New Year's Eve when she was all alone. In her free verse, she describes what I am sure is the experience of many more who could have written these words. This is what she wrote. She said, God, it's New Year's Eve, and I took a hot bath and poured powder and lotion and perfume recklessly, and I donned my newest long, dainty nightgown. I guess I was hoping all that would erase the agony of being alone in such a gallant, celebrating moment when everyone so likes to be with someone. To watch a new year in. It hasn't helped too much. I've tried to sleep, hoping that would beat away the endless hours. But after all afternoon and two hours tonight, I'm worn out from sleep. I've stumbled from one room to the next, wanting to cry. Oh God, the walls are so silent and there is no one around to laugh and change the subject. I so wish for a friend's lap to bury my head and let my tears spill unabashedly and free. You may think that's just a woman feeling sorry for herself, but it is not. It is someone expressing what many have felt, and she was pretty close to the mark in her description of what it can be like. Then there's the lonely spouse. It is an amazement to me that the institution that God created to provide the greatest sense of intimacy often becomes the place of great loneliness. I remember speaking about this on another occasion, and after I got done, I got a letter in the mail the next week from a woman who wrote to me in these words. She said, it is tragic, and yet it is true that when we are married, we do not always find the fellowship and the intimacy that we would expect. She said, today you really struck a spot that is sensitive in my heart. 
I try not to dwell on it, the loneliness in marriage, but the truth is I am lonely. My husband and I are both Christians. We live relatively well. We're educated, and my husband is a good man. He works hard and is a good provider. He isn't abusive, and he's a fairly good father. But my emotional needs are very rarely met because he works all the time. It's the case of two people living parallel lives but never really meeting at all. He has heard and read a little about how a husband can create a good relationship with his wife, but it must all pass over him without making an impression. I'm not going to nag. I try not to think about it, but the hurt is deep. I am a very lonely person. Isn't that something? In marriage, the most intimate relationship on the face of God's earth, and yet there are many who find it to be a very lonely place. And then there are the lonely survivors, the people who live on after the loved one has died. Lonely survivors experience a kind of pain which I am told is so intense that there is nothing in life to which you can compare it. What the widow and the widower go through is not describable in terms that you and I would understand. But if you've been through it, you know what I'm talking about. Often it is divorce that causes the survivor to be left alone. And in many ways, divorce can be more painful than death, for there is no finality to it and there is no closure to it. There is no way to fully and finally recover, and sometimes there is the awful sense of rejection that goes along with the loneliness. And then, of course, there's the lonely senior citizen that we see, and the population is graying, as you know, and there are more and more senior people than there ever have been. They often find themselves very lonely, no longer in a relationship, no longer feeling needed. Maybe they came out of a place where they had a position of authority and a position of respect, and now they wonder if anybody needs them and if there's any purpose for them being around at all. For so many, the golden years turn out to be years where the glow has gone, and they're left wondering if there's anything for which to live. And the loneliness can be very acute. And there's the lonely sufferer who experiences the pain that he cannot describe to anyone else. One man wrote to me on occasion to describe this in a letter I received. He said, it's when the lights go out and the room is suddenly plunged into darkness that the awful awareness comes. And the traffic of the hospital goes on like an uncontrolled fever outside my door, but inside the room is so still. And it's awful. And it's lonely. And there's the lonely servant of God. What can I say about the person who leaves this culture and goes to the mission field, leaving behind everybody that he knows, everybody that he has a connectedness with, family and friends and church, and he goes into a culture where he doesn't have any affinity for the culture at all and just for the purpose of being God's servant, he goes there and he determines that he's going to be God's servant. But we get letters from our missionaries and they tell us how difficult it can be when you're so disconnected from everything that you've always known. It can be a very lonely experience. I remember reading about Moses in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers when he felt the loneliness of leadership he said in Numbers eleven fourteen, I can't carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. And anyone who's ever been in a position of leadership knows that there's a kind of loneliness that comes when you're the leader. By the very fact that you're out front, you have turned your back on the rest of the people. Did you ever think about that? 
And there's no way to relate at the same level. There's no one that you can interact with who understands the experience that you have. And believe it or not, you can be a leader of a large church in a large ministry and still experience momentary loneliness that comes with the territory of leadership. And some of you may say, well, those are all just cultural problems, problems that we have today because of the disconnectedness in our culture. But I want to take that thought away from you if I can and remind you that one of the reasons I wanted to preach on all of these subjects is to tell you that it is not a sin to be lonely. It is not something you should say, oh, it's a terrible thing. I must not be trusting God. I'm lonely, and so I must not have enough faith. The Bible tells us very clearly that throughout the scriptures, there were many who experienced periods of loneliness. David was a man who felt loneliness in his heart. I remember reading in the Psalms on one occasion where he talked about how he felt in the aloneness of his life. In Psalm 102, verses 3 and verse 6 and 7, he says this, For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned like a hearth. Now watch this. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am like an owl of the desert. I lie awake and am like a sparrow alone on the housetop. Those are vivid descriptions of the way he felt when he experienced the loneliness of his soul. Psalm 142, verse 4, he says, Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. And you can almost feel the edge of the loneliness in those words as David describes feeling alone. We don't have to read much of the story of David's life to know why he would feel that way. Chased as he was by Saul, he was a fugitive for much of his life before he ultimately came to the kingdom. And David knew many moments of aloneness. Aren't you glad he wrote them down so that we could identify with him? When I read his words, I don't then feel so badly that once in a while I experience that. David, the king, experienced loneliness. And then there's Jeremiah the prophet. Not Jeremiah the preacher, but Jeremiah the prophet. In the Old Testament, we read about Jeremiah. It is one of the most agonizing stories you will ever read. In fact, if you are not aware of it, the book of Lamentations is connected to the book of Jeremiah, and it used to be one book before they separated them out. And you know the book of Lamentations is a book of funeral poems collected together to describe the anguish of Jeremiah's heart as he watched the city of Jerusalem dissipate right in front of his eyes. He saw the culture come unglued. He preached against it, and he knew that in preaching against it, they would not listen, they would not hear. And Jeremiah became the weeping prophet as he wept over the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. It was an agonizing thing for him. It's agonizing even to read about it today. Jeremiah knew something of the loneliness that can come to a person who is following God. Jeremiah was simply doing what God told him to do. He was following the direction of the Almighty and he experienced loneliness in his heart. On one occasion, Jeremiah said these words in Jeremiah 9, 2. He said, Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they are all adulterers and an assembly of treacherous men. Jeremiah got so fed up with watching what was happening to his culture, he said, If I could just get a Motel 6 out in the desert, I'd just go out there and stay. And he was absolutely alone and wanting to be more alone. 
because of the anguish of his soul. So there is loneliness, whether you be a king or whether you be a prophet. Those are Old Testament people. What about New Testament people? I'd like to tell you just a little bit about Paul the Apostle. The greatest man who ever lived outside of Jesus Christ. The human author of much of the New Testament scriptures. The founder of all of the missionary churches. The writer of the book of Romans. The greatest treatise on theology ever conceived. Paul the Apostle was a lonely man on occasion. When he wrote his little letter to Timothy, which we call 2 Timothy, it's the last letter he ever wrote before he died. He described the loneliness of his heart in the last chapter of the epistle. And he wrote his letter in these words. Listen carefully. Be diligent to come to me quickly, he writes to Timothy. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, and Crescens has gone to Galatia, and Titus is in Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Antichicus I have sent to Ephesus. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. You feel that? Here's the great apostle, and he stands alone. No one is with him. You would think that could not happen. You would think that's the kind of thing that doesn't happen to the great apostle. But the point of all of this is to help us all understand that when we feel the loneliness sweep in and begin to take control of us, we aren't the first person ever to visit that place. It is known by many in our culture, and it has been known by many who walked before us in Bible days. And it is not a sin to be alone. It's not sin to experience loneliness. It only becomes a sin when we start to indulge it and when we fail to obey the instruction of the word of God, which is given to us to help us dispel the loneliness in our life. It is not wrong to visit loneliness. It is wrong to move in and let loneliness take over your life. So what do we do with it? How do we handle it? Where do we go when we feel alone? Let me suggest some things that will help us learn how to escape from loneliness when it begins to take over our life. First of all, we need to acknowledge the reality of it. I hope you're not among the people who are given to pious platitudes about personal problems. We as Christians have made an indoor sport out of saying the things that we think people would expect us to say, when in reality, they're not reality at all. A.W. Tozer was writing about this on one occasion, and he said, Some say brightly, Oh, I never am lonely. Christ said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and lo, I am with you always. So how can I ever be lonely when Jesus is with me? And then Tozer went on to write, now, I do not want to reflect on the sincerity of any Christian soul, but this stock testimony is too neat to be real. It is obviously what the speaker thinks should be true rather than what he has proved to be true by the test of his own experience. Have you ever heard an answer like that from someone? You go to them with your problem, and before you can even get the sentence out of your mouth, out comes the stock and trade answer, and then you've heard it all before. Yeah. I always think about uh, the counselors of Job who counseled him Im immediately by not saying anything. 
sometimes saying nothing is the best answer. Just being there, just knowing that you care, that makes so much difference. Well, these are important discussions we're having. We're going to take a break for the weekend and come back with part two of slaying the giant of loneliness. Let me just make a comment about the weekend, if I might. We're on television all over the country now in just about every community, either on a local station or a national network. And our television program is in addition to what we do on the radio. You will benefit from that. I hope you can watch as you have opportunity. I always tell you, don't ever let it interrupt your church attendance. If you go to church when the program's on in your area, DVR the program, go to church. Make that your priority. That should be your priority all the time, especially during these days when there's kind of a diminishing commitment to the church, kind of as a... I think probably a result of COVID where people got comfortable staying home. I just want to be a cheerleader for people getting back to church, and I hope you will do that as well. And we'll be back on Monday uh, with uh, part two of Slaying the Giant of Loneliness. In the meantime, if you haven't already done so, please make sure you ask for your copy of the book, Slaying the Giants in Your Life. Uh, We'll send that book to you for a gift of any size during the month of February. When you send your gift, be sure to ask for the book, and it'll be on its way to you before you know it. Now, friends, have a great weekend. Put Jesus Christ first in your life. Be in church. Be an encouragement to somebody, and be sure to show up for the next lesson on Monday. We'll see you then. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, Slaying the Giants in Your Life, please visit our website, There you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of David's book, Slaying the Giants in Your Life, and learn to banish the giants from the promised land of your life. This popular book is yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions with notes and articles from Dr. Jeremiah's decades of study. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us Monday as we continue slaying the giants in your life on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. the young ones in your life on an unforgettable journey that will get them excited about the Word of God with Airship Genesis Legendary Bible Adventures from Turning Point. Tune in to our monthly audio adventures and join the Genesis Exploration Squad as they travel back in time to experience the stories of the Bible firsthand and discover life-changing lessons. Also available is the Airship Genesis Kids Study Bible packed with the biblical content specifically written for kids from trusted Bible teacher, Dr. David Jeremiah. You can also download our Airship Genesis mobile game on your favorite smart device and play as your favorite characters in this puzzle adventure game as the squad experiences the life of Jesus firsthand. Just go to your app store and type the keywords Airship Genesis. For more details or to order a copy of the Airship Genesis Kids Study Bible, visit our website at airshipgenesis.com bible. That's airshipgenesis.com slash Bible. 
In July 1981, the King and Queen of Spain refused to attend the wedding of England's Prince Charles and Lady Diana. They were protesting the capture of 2.6 square miles of land on the southern tip of Spain called Gibraltar by England in 1704. England never returned the territory to Spain. Gibraltar today is a British colony and base for the British Navy. We may smile at the idea of a grudge that is now more than 300 years old, but we are guilty of holding grudges ourselves. The New Testament says, let us forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's forgiveness on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.